rainout, I would think. Guerrero hits it high, hits it deep to left center field. Mumphrey on his horse, going, can't get it. Say scores from third. Here comes Baker, rounding third. Guerrero heading for third. In with a triple, and the Dodgers have got the big inning going. Ball is lifted out into left center field. Mumphrey can't get it. Garvey scores. Here comes Thomas to the plate. The throw to third, not in time. Double Guerrero. Two runs are in. And it's becoming a blowout. Eight to one, Los Angeles. That ball is well hit in the corner. Winfield loping over, and it's in the seats. It's a home run. Well, Pedro Guerrero. Will there be some uh, call for a second ballot here? Might have to take another look. Clutch home run to tie the game Sunday. Tremendous day today. Welcome back. We're here for season five of For the Defense. My name is David Oscar Marcus, and I'm so excited to be back with you talking with some of the greatest trial lawyers about the biggest and best cases that we've had in our country's history. Um, I'm really, really excited about our lineup of guests this season. We have Barry Sheck from The Innocence Project, Jerry Lefcourt from uh, the Chicago 7, Abby Hoffman's trial, uh, Lisa Wayne, the current president of NACDL, Matt Menchel, lots of others. It's going to be a, a really fun and great season. But first up, and I'm so um, honored and, and happy to have him, is my former law partner, Milton Hirsch, um, who's a current sitting judge here in Miami, Florida. And Milton is one of the finest trial lawyers uh, around. He He's truly one of the greats. And so it's a great privilege to have him on the podcast. And I think you're going to find this case a lot of fun. We speak to Milt about the Pedro Guerrero trial. Pedro Guerrero was an MVP uh, in Major League Baseball, just a, a sick athlete, sick baseball player. And he got charged down here in Miami with a drug case. And Milt famously defended him in federal court. And the defense was, uh, in, in, in general terms, he was too stupid to have done the drug deal that they're accusing him of doing. It was a crazy defense and a successful defense. You'll hear about how Milt did it, uh, how he won the case, all the ins and outs. It's a really fascinating uh, case study. And so let's get right into it with Milton Hirsch on For the Defense. All right, I'm here with the great Milton Hirsch, not only my friend, um, but my former partner, mentor. He's now a sitting state court judge, and we're going to talk about one of the great all-time defenses and cases. Welcome to the show, Milt. Thank you, David. My pleasure. So we're going to talk about the Pedro Guerrero case, which is such a fun case and defense. Why don't you tell us a little about who Pedro Guerrero uh, is and, and how you got the case? Well, it was, you know, we've forgotten about Pedro. Baseball heroes come and go. But in the pre-steroids era, he was one of the uh, very great baseball players. I think he's the first guy to have a multi-million dollar contract for a single year. Of course, nowadays that's lunch money. But in those days, that was a, a, a big deal. He played mostly for the Dodgers and at the tail end of his career with the Cardinals. And he, um, like a remarkable number of ball players, he grew up in a 
a little town called San Pedro de Macorís, which is a, a little town in the Dominican Republic that has proved to be a cradle, a, a, a factory of baseball players. Uh, he being the one, Sammy Sosa, there were many others. Um, and um, in a sense, the story of the trial starts there, really. So, and we'll get into that for sure. But, you know, as criminal defense lawyers, when you were criminal defense lawyers, one of the things we have to do when we meet with a client is tell them about conflicts. Did you tell Pedro that you're a huge Cub fan and it was going to be hard for you to represent <laughs> a, an all, all-time Cardinal? Great. <laughs> We got over that in a hurry. <laughs> that wasn't a particular problem. Okay. Um, so, you know, one of the things that people are always interested in and, and always um, appreciate when I ask is how criminal defense lawyers get cases. So I know you're a judge now, you don't have to worry about that. But when you were a criminal defense lawyer, like how would you even go about getting a case like Pedro Guerrero? Most Actually, most of my work, David, as you know, um, I, I had friends and contemporaries that large and mid-sized civil and commercial firms. And if each one of those were firms referred me a case once a year, and there were 12 or 15 of those firms, that was my practice. This came to me a little bit differently. It was a little unusual. Um, a longtime friend of mine who did criminal practice, Jeff Fire, and who remained involved in this case in a kind of a background way, um, also was cultivating um, uh, some sports representation and celebrity representation practice. He had uh, uh, another young lawyer who did that with him. And uh, when they got this case, um, they were concerned that because of uh, the complexity and some of the legal issues and problems associated with it, um, they, they, they didn't want to take responsibility for it, which I think was, was generous on their part. I think that was, they were thinking the best interest of the client. And so they brought me in. So what was what was Pedro charged with? Um, a, a, a possession with intent to distribute and conspiracy to possess with intent to distribute. Cocaine. Yeah, oh, yeah. And so when you get, I'm sorry, like, I took that for granted. In my day, everything was cocaine. <laughs> yeah, everything was cocaine. So, so you get this case, um, Guerrero. You know, all-time great baseball player, um, charged in federal court. You know, the defense, and we'll get into this great defense, is you know, he's just not smart enough to have to have uh, really done a drug deal. Do you talk to him about, you know, this is going to be the defense in your case, like it or not? Um, you know, oftentimes when I spoke to him, he he would nod and smile. And I, I was often concerned about whether we were really communicating. Um, there were a couple of junctures during the trial, when he came to me and said that someone had told him that I was saying that he was not very bright and, and that that hurt his feelings. But uh, he was very sweet guy. But I explained to him that, you know, we say things um, to try to create an effective defense and that, you know, he shouldn't take this as necessarily an expression of my feelings about it. And so was he okay with the defense or was he upset? Because there are stories, there were rumors that he was not happy that this was the defense. There were a couple of junctures where he was unhappy, but he, he got over it. He was yeah, happy he, at the end. He, yeah, at the end, I'm sure he he got over it really quickly. Uh, so, I, you know, let's let's talk about um, getting ready for the trial. So, you get the discovery in federal court back then. You know, you get very little discovery, but one of the things you get are are tape recordings, of course. 
Yeah. And Pedro's um, on some of the tapes. Can you can you give us a flavor for the tape recordings that he's on and the trouble that you see in the case? Yeah, this was, you know, the DEA group that did this was was a terrific. These guys were outstanding. They were really good. I even remember the head of the group was a guy named Sandy Tilley. He was just an outstanding agent. In fact, after the trial was over, he called me to tell me it was the first time they had ever lost, that they had never made a case that didn't result in conviction. Um, so these guys were very thorough and meticulous. And um, there were a couple of meetings where Pedro shows up at a Hooters. He loved Hooters. He's very fond of Hooters. Um, he liked drinking beer and he liked looking at girls in short skirts and tight glasses. That was, that was his principal interest in his retirement life. Um, and everyone seated at this table was either a DEA agent or a SNP, not informant, except paper. Everyone else seated at the table. So they had these elaborate tape recordings. And when you read them, they're just, they're deadly. You know, they're just horrible, horrible. They go on and on in great detail. And, um, I think one of the key moments, the real, one of the real epiphanies in the trial of this case, was that I did something, and David, let me, I take no credit for this. I take no credit for this. Um, I always believed that it was the job of a criminal trial lawyer to study the work of the great criminal trial lawyers before him and, and in his own time, and to use as much as possible from what they did. So we steal. We steal. We st it's not stealing. It's absolutely on the up and up. And in, fra in fact, frankly, I'm disappointed that nowadays I don't see more young lawyers sitting in courtrooms or leafing through transcripts and trying to pick up tips from the David Marcuses. I think there should be more of that. But, but I had learned, it was certainly not original with me by no means, I had, I had, it was perfectly obvious to me what to do with these deadly, deadly tape uh, transcripts that went on and on and on. What I did was... I took these transcripts and I split them into two transcripts. One had everything that was said by everyone at the table except Pedro. And one had just Pedro's contribution to the conversation. So you have this one transcript where there's DEA agents and informers talking about, you know, we should do a massive drug deal in violation of Title 21 of the United <laughs> States. God, I mean, it was almost as express as that. They were right. pouring it on. And you look at all the contribution Pedro made, and it was, now it was in Spanish, but the English language version is, okay, uh-huh, ooh, look at that. Can I get a beer? And that was it. And that over and over and over again. Um, and during the cross of this really terrific DEA agent, and there just wasn't much he could do. It's not because I was particularly clever or terrific. There it was. It was being displayed. This is everything all of you said, and here's everything Pedro said, and that's his entire contribution. And honestly, it was one of those unusual trials where you see the jury just doing that kind of... Right. I love it. Now, you know, you talked about looking at the old transcripts and uh, of great trial lawyers. I, I remember you always talking about Frank Oliver. Is it, was this a Frank Oliver uh, tactic? It was or? not. It was not. That was not from Frank. Um, I remember that. But um, 
David, there were so many. I still have boxes and boxes of transcripts. I may have some yours, by the way, but I have uh, great, great crosses, great closings, great openings from great lawyers going back some very recently and some years and years ago. And I, you need to, we all need to study. So, you know, one of the issues is people don't have those transcripts and, and don't know about some of these people. Of course, everybody knows Edward Bennett Williams. Everybody knows Lee Bailey. Everybody knows Roy Black. Not everybody knows about people like Frank Oliver. Tell us about him and, and uh, what, what kind of lawyer he was and any, any good story before we get back into Guerrero. Frank was a terrific, um, brilliant, brilliant man, a little eccentric to the point of crazy. Uh, he practiced out of Chicago, although he traveled around a lot. And in the 50s and into the 60s, he did a lot of mob work. He did a lot of mafia representation. And his product was brilliant. Now, his style of cross-examination, you would not adopt today because his questions were very lengthy and ornate um, and, and full of references to uh, a classical you know, Greek mythology and things like that. You, you wouldn't do that today. I, I know that you are well familiar with uh, the work of Terry McCarthy, who is the the federal public defender in Chicago for years and years, and who knew Frank and who studies Frank, studied Frank's work, but was the first to say that that although Frank's stuff was brilliant, you had to be Frank to do Frank. <laughs> yeah. Well, in reading the transcripts from from this case, I I say you have to be Milt to do Milt. I mean, wow. the stuff you did in this case um, was was great. So one of the transcripts I did not have. But I, I love talking about your voir dire. One of the things you do, I cannot do, which is you get the list of juror names and you immediately memorize them all and speak to them and call them out by name. Tell us how you came to do that and how, how you're able to do it, because I, I could never do it. I, you know, I, I was taught that I don't remember by whom it's probably some great previous lawyer who was in the habit. Of, but I think that nowadays, particularly, we are so accustomed to our cell phones, our computers, the written word, that really we don't, we're unaccustomed to using our memory for very much. Now in federal court, generally you don't get voir dire. I was fortunate to have gotten voir dire in that case. What'd you get, 10 minutes? I don't remember, but I was grateful for whatever I got. Yeah. Um, in state court, as you know, in Florida and in many state jurisdictions, it's just the opposite. You have to let the lawyers drone on and on and on. But um, in federal cases, once in a blue moon, we'll get some voir dire. And um, what I did, uh, I'm telling you, I'm a sitting judge. You know, this is this borders on uh, not good practices. But <clears throat> at the conclusion of all my questions, I would pick a a softball question. You know, Mr. Marcus, can you give my client a fair trial, a full and fair trial, so some silly like that. And I would go through all the jurors, all the person, people in the venire. Mr. Smith, Ms. Jones, Mr. Gonzalez, Ms. Hernandez, whatever, naming each one and asking them some very simple question that they would say yes to. And when I get all the way through all of them, it might be, you know, 50 or 60 or however many there were, before I would stop, I would say, well, ladies and gentlemen, that's all the questions I have for you. But I'm I'm reluctant to sit down because I really do think that voir dire, this, this part of the trial, is the best and most important part because it's the only time that you get to speak to us. So if there's anything you want to say or anything you'd like to ask, before I sit down, here's your last chance. And about one trial in three, somebody in the back would raise his or her hand and say, how did you 
did you remember all our names? Great, yeah. And that was a gift from God because the, the, the answer to that is, Mr. Marcus, if you could take the time and trouble out of your life to come down and defend the rights of my innocent client, the least I can do is take the time and trouble to remember your name <laughs> and then sit down, sit down. Now, now, when a young PD does that in your courtroom after listening to this podcast, you can't, you can't throw them out. You have to, you have to let them do it. I, I, I hope nobody will do that. <laughs> it's a, it is a dubious, uh, it's, it's right on the edge. So let's get into the opening because I, I have the transcript here. And if anybody wants it, they should just email me because I'll, with your permission, send them the transcript, which of course, is just it's public awesome. record. So, so obviously, you know, Pedro is this great baseball player. And I love how you start the opening because you talk about, how in every baseball game, the visiting team bats first and the home team bats in the bottom of the inning, sort of making the government the visiting <laughs> team and the defense the home team. I just I wasn't going to pass that up, David. I was not going to pass that up. That was a chance you don't get very much. Yeah, I, I love that. And then you talk about let's go through um, the lineup for the visiting team and you talk about all the snitches who they're going to be calling, uh, which I also really, really like just the imagery of, you know, here's their lineup. Here's who who they're relying on, uh, and here's all the bad things about them. Yeah, actually, the, the two worst snitchers, they never called. Um, they, they talked about them relentlessly. One of them had brought Pedro into the case, taking advantage of a, a sort of a distant family connection. Um, but they were, they were ashamed to call these people. Um, but it was clear that they were going to be at the center of the case, whether they actually came to court or not. And in a way, that was the best of all possible worlds for us. They, they don't call them, but you're still obviously allowed to bring out what they've been paid and so on. And you do that right in the opening. You talk about how one of them, I think, got over $650,000 and was on a contingency in this case. I mean, you don't see that all the time where if there was a conviction and a forfeiture, the snitch gets paid. Yeah. And this was... Remember, this is 23 years ago. $650,000 was a vast fortune. I mean, jurors' mouths fell open when we talked about that kind of money. And he would get another $17,500 if they returned a guilty verdict against paper. I mean, just just unbelievable. Um, it's, it's no wonder they didn't call him. Um, did you ever have a, a thought to call the, the snitches or you were happy that they weren't called? No, I didn't want them. Um, I was able to attack their credibility um, without them coming to court. And um, as you've seen in closing argument, I got to do something that we don't get to do often. Which we'll I get there. We'll get there. Don't jump okay. the gun. So so down the line, you go through the snitches, of course, in opening, and then you talk about your client, Pedro. And, and I'll read a little of it because it's so good. So you say Pedro Guerrero got about as far as the sixth grade. He didn't quite finish and the reason that is very simple, Pedro didn't understand what was going on in school. Then you talk about now the Lord spreads his bounty unevenly. Some of us are made wise and some foolish, some tall and some short, some fat and some thin, some talented and some without talents. The evidence in this case will show, and we'll be talking about this later in the course of the trial, that Pedro Guerrero has almost no talent in so many ways. He suffers from a profoundly depressed IQ, far from below normal. We'll talk about that in a minute. He suffers from a clinically diagnosed dependent personality. But there's one thing Pedro Guerrero could do just about better than anyone in the whole wide world. By the time he was 13 or 14 year old, they figured out that Pedro Guerrero could hit a baseball. I mean, that is just good stuff, right? At the moment when I said that, 
I took out from the podium a baseball that I had placed there before I got up to open. And I just tossed it up in the air and a little bit and caught it and held it. Oh, so, so good. Um, now, you know, again, like I mentioned before, there were rumors that when you say those things about Guerrero's intelligence and opening, um, he, when he heard that, he was not a happy camper. Well, you know, he didn't react to things going on in the moment. People would talk to him. Family members would talk to him. The other thing was the press. There was a tremendous press attention. I mean, the, the publicity that this case got it, and remarkably, in sports pages all over the country, in Los Angeles and St. Louis and New York, and of course in Miami. Um, and and what was going on behind the scenes was, you know, a friend or a neighbor or a family member would say, "Hey, Baker, I saw in the paper that your lawyers says you're stupid." <laughs> And he would, he would come to see me and say, hey, don't say that I'm stupid. And I would have to explain to him what was actually going on. It's interesting, right? Because obviously that was a theme of your opening, but it wasn't the main theme. I mean, the main theme seemed to be how much the snitches were getting paid, that Pedro didn't say much at the at the meetings, that that he really wasn't involved. Of course, another theme was that he was, he was too stupid. But I mean, everybody, the media, everybody in town was talking about, you know, the too stupid defense. Oh, yeah. You know, obviously, as is the case with you now, when I was in practice, most of my friends and the people I spent a lot of time with were fellow criminal defense attorneys. And of course, Miami has been blessed with terrific, terrific criminal defense attorneys over the years. And in the wake of this this trial, you know, uh, I was constantly joking with all my friends and colleagues that I had gotten up in closing argument and said, ladies and gentlemen, this man who could have any lawyer in America that he wanted and chose me, is too stupid for you to hold him responsible for his choices. And the jury looked back at me and said, you know, when you put it that way, not guilt. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, the, the line that all the press picked up on um, from your opening and, and really went with it about the too stupid defense um, was, was this one. It says, I will prove to you, ladies and gentlemen, that all this conversation about Pedro Guerrero financing or underwriting a drug deal is ludicrous that this man has neither the financial acumen nor the wherewithal, the dollars and cents to finance anything more complicated than lunch. And that if, and the evidence will make that clear. Everybody picked up on the lunch line. Yeah, well, because we were going to hear a lot about what went on in Hooters and that Pedro is, he's a little unenlightened in his remarks about, about Hooters waitress. The, the other really interesting thing that struck me from the opening and throughout the trial was that, you know, they arrest Pedro at his house. They without a warrant. They just uh, everybody goes with with guns blazing, and they bring him in to interview him, and they confront him. And at first, he doesn't know what they're talking about. And then, when confronted, he he starts to cry. Yeah, and and you made a big deal about this. You know, I love the embracing the bad fact. I would have thought initially the government would say, "Look, he's caught." And he starts to cry, realizing he's going to go to jail for the next 20 years of his life. And you, but you, you flipped that on. I, I tried to use that twice. One was in the cross of this uh, uh, agent, Lucerna, who, as I say, was an absolutely terrific agent. And I asked him, um, you know, I said, and when you finally made clear to me that what you were talking about was a drug deal involving cocaine, he started to cry. Yes. And when we say cry, Agent Lacerna, 
there are tears rolling down his cheeks. And, and he says to me, well, yes, you know, because he knew he'd been caught. He was going to go to prison. And I said, Agent, did it ever occur to you that a man would cry if he was going to go to prison for something he didn't do? And he, you know, he kind of huffed and puffed a little bit, but I was happy with the question. I wasn't concerned with the answer. Right. And I came back to it again in close, making the same point. You know, they they teach first year lawyers don't ask questions that you don't know the answer to. You don't know how he's going to respond to those questions. Do you care about how he's going to respond? You know, look, in federal court, there's no discovery. If you don't ask questions you don't know the answer to, there's nothing to ask. You have to take calculated risks. And there is such a thing as questions that you don't care the, about the answer. It's not common, but it happens. Um, and, and, and on that particular question, yeah, I knew he was going to come back and say, well, you know, guilty, guilty, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I was able to say, so you never considered the possibility that someone would cry because he was going to be going to prison for something he didn't do. That never even crossed your mind. It doesn't matter. I, I don't care. Yeah. I don't care. And I came back to it in closing because they had conceded. Look, this guy won the, he was MVP of the World Series. This is the guy, I said in closing, this is the guy you want standing in against Nolan Ryan with two outs in the bottom of the ninth and the bases loaded. He's the Iceman. He's nerves of steel. And here he is sitting in the DEA headquarters out by Doral, sobbing like a little baby. Crazy. So, so Mill. You practice both in federal and state court. And now, of course, you're a judge in state court where depositions are allowed. There's full discovery in state court. In federal court, it's the opposite. No, right. no, no depots, no discovery. Um, you know, you now have the perspective from the bench of how that plays out is should should the federal courts be more like the state courts or the state courts more like the federal court? Well, you know, the original idea of uh, plenary discovery in state court was that in Florida in the 70s, the late 60s, the 70s, and into the 80s, the volume of cases because of the drug traffic and the money laundering and so on was so overwhelming in state court and the violence. Um, discovery um, will turn a three-week trial into a three-day trial because in federal court, you're you don't know where you're going on cross until you've been crossing a guy for a while. So I think there is a certain people don't recognize. Uh, people say, "Oh, deposition, waste of time, waste of resource." And in terms of in court time, it's it's one of the most efficient tools that you can have. And I did obviously, I you know, I have a point of view, David, as do you, but I always felt that um, federal courts would be a better and fairer. Uh, in their trial process, if there was some measure of discovery, and and you know, speaking of differences, obviously you got ten or fifteen minutes, whatever it was in this case for voir dire. In, in a state court case like this, I mean, how much time do you give the lawyers to do voir dire? You really can't limit it. Um, the law is that until you catch lawyers repeating themselves or asking something so hopelessly irrelevant that it couldn't possibly relate to this case, you have to let them go on. Now, there, I think that's wrong. I think it should be. I'm, I'm in favor of attorney conducted voir dire, but I think there should be limits as to content and time. And we don't have that. Um, and I don't see lawyers making good use of their time because they don't have to. 
When you were doing a state court voir dire as a criminal defense lawyer, how much time would you think is the right amount of time to use? Would you spend an hour, a couple hours? What was it? That's that's like what hats I should everybody wear, David. Every case is different, and there are different issues and different uh, consequences. But I remember, um, you know, it's the same thing with closing argument. There are judges, state and federal, who will say, you have X amount of time for closing argument. I've never done that in my life. And when I was a young lawyer, Ellen Morphonius, who's a legendary judge in this jurisdiction, uh, was I saw her asked, how much time do I get for closing? Some lawyer asked her, and she said, uh, counsel, I don't limit closing argument. If you talk too long, the jury will know what to do with it. And I thought, ooh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a lesson to be learned. And, and Roy uh, Black just wrote an op-ed in the Daily Business Review criticizing a, a judge here in town for, for limiting closing argument. Roy says you should get, you should take as long as you need. Get up and close. And if you talk too long, trust me, the jury, I mean, we need to have faith in the jury system. You and I do. I think a lot of people preach it, but don't practice it. it when lawyers talk too long and redundantly, the jury will, will inflict the punishment. The judge doesn't need to lose that. So let's talk about some of the crosses of the agents that you had. I mean, one of the obviously big things, and we've touched upon it, is how much money the um, snitches were getting paid. You contrasted that, of course, with how much money Pedro was getting paid, which was zero. Right. Um, I mean, <clears throat> what, what was the government's theory on this? I mean, why was Pedro involved if he was not getting a penny out of it? They were never expressed. And there was the implication that there was somehow more behind it, that, that, that somehow he was either going to benefit this time or in some, some unidentified, unrele- un, un, unsketched out manner. Um, and that was a problem, I thought, for the government, particularly because, as I said, everybody else was in it for the money. Right. Not the DEA agents, but in their way, and the informers for sure. The informers also got what is called in the business as an S visa. Yeah. And you made a big deal on cross-examination about the S visa. Can you tell us a little about what an S visa is and how you used it to your advantage? Yeah. Um, S visas are very rare. The received wisdom in the legal community is that S stands for snitch, but of course the government will deny that emphatically. Um, on rare occasions, people who are snitches, who are cooperating or somehow benefiting the government, will be permitted visas, even though they qualify in no way at all. And what's fabulous about these S visas, if you read them, you look at the questions that are asked, you know, did you, did you torture people for the Nazis? Are you, a, 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 were you part of Stalin's communist, uh, you know, have you, have you sodomized barnyard fowl? I mean, the, the questions that are on them are just appalling. And, and, you know, you want to, if you have a witness against you who is the recipient of an S visa, of course, you want to make clear that the government before providing him this extraordinary consideration was felt itself obliged to ask him the following questions. Right, right. You know, you, you mentioned how important it is to read transcripts and go to court and watch. I mean, when when you were a young lawyer, what lawyers did you look up to? Were you watching? Were you reading transcripts of to, to learn how to do these kinds of crosses? Well, the transcripts, you know, you, you can get transcripts going back to to Thomas Erskine, you know, in the 
in the in the late 17 and early 1800s. There's 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 trial transcripts and books relating this stuff that, that go way back. I was very fortunate in that when I was a young lawyer in this community, you could go to, to court and see Ed Carhart or Jay Hogan or Roy Black or Jack De Niro or Neil Sonnet or Ed Shohat or Ted Klein uh, or Richie Sharpstein. Or, uh, and, and I ended up having co-defendants with all these guys, but I started out by watching them. And it was, as Judge Robert Snowden, federal judge, a friend of ours, yours and mine, uh, says, I was working on my PhD in cryology. <laughs> That's great. That's great. You know, one story I don't think we've told on the podcast, maybe you could tell it, is the Jay Hogan story where, where he brought to court uh, something under a big sheet. Oh, oh. Jay, Jay was certainly one of the greatest trial lawyers anybody ever saw. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a cliche that great trial preparation makes you a great trial lawyer. And, you know, Everyone from Louis Neiser to uh, uh, Roger Dodd and Larry Posner and, and it, all the, the great trial practitioners and trial teachers teach that lesson. Um, Jay had a case um, in which it turned out that the star witness, this, I don't know, it was a snitch, I guess, or a cooperative witness of some kind, had just sold his house. And Jay showed up. Uh, the next day, as the new, a couple days later, the new homeowner was moving in. And this, this uh, witness was one of those people. This is common enough. I had a grandfather like this. Uh, the garage never had room for the car because it was all, he was a pack rat. It was just yeah. packed full of stuff. Right. And Jay, if you remember Jay, and I know you do, uh, Jay could strike up a conversation with the department store manager. I mean, he was just what he wanted to be. He could be the most affable guy you ever met in the world. And he'd start chatting with this total stranger. Oh, you bought this house. You know, he's, wow, all that stuff in the garage. What are you going to do with that? And the guy says, oh, I'll probably pay a thousand bucks to get it. Although Jay says to him, I give you $200 for everything in the garage. And the guy looks over Jay's shoulders like a man with a white coat and a butterfly net's going to show up. So you're going to pay me for the junk in the garage. Yeah. Boom. Done. Jay takes this stuff, and it's just tons of garbage, and and ninety percent of it is just that it's garbage. But it turns out that this guy had a, a sort of a monomania. He's, he he seemed the most normal of individuals, except in one bizarre respect. He had a fixation with the platinum bombshell of the uh, '30s and '40s movies, Gene Harlan. Uh, there are great black and white movies showing her in sequin dress, dresses with feather boas and platinum right. blonde hair. She was briefly married to Humphrey Bogart. And, um, well, maybe she wasn't, but somebody was. All right, anyway, <laughs> yeah. um, this, this witness was just obsessed with her and had elaborate diaries in which he talked about um, feeling her uh, come down, her spirit come down and actually inhabit her. And, and he would chant. Right? Yeah. Now, when trial began, this guy at some point early on in the trial was called by the prosecution. He's on the witness stand for what must have seemed like days. It may have been days. And he's just burying Jay's guy, just burying him alive. Meantime, next to Jay is this enormous easel. It's, it's six foot plus in height. 
with a, a bed sheet thrown over it so nobody can see what it is. And Jay's not letting you look. And when this guy, when direct is finally over, Jay's guy looks deader than dead. Uh, was, the judgments from Zay Gonzalez, wonderful judge, wonderful judge. He looks over and says, Mr. Hogan crosses in and Jay gets up. Jay was a big guy. It took him a while to stand up. And he, he swept the sheet off the easel, sort of like a matador. And there was a larger than life size blow from a captured from a movie in black and white of Gene Harlow, blonde hair, feather boa, sequin gown, the warts. <laughs> and he stands there for a No great rush. And he looks at the witness and says, you know who that is. The guy's eyes are bugging in his head, and he says, <laughs> tell the jury who that is. And the guy says, it's me. Oh. <laughs> and it goes on from there. Well, he's beating this guy to a pulp. Finally, he starts to move on to the substance of the case. And the prosecutor, I'm trying to remember, it may have been Billy Santopoulos, who's a good lawyer. The prosecutor is a very good lawyer. Grabs himself to his feet and says, Judge, if, if Mr. Hogan is done with that, could we cover it back up again? And <laughs> yeah. Jay says, Oh no, I'm coming back to that. That's <laughs> great. It's great. See, we need we need that that's the point of this podcast, really, is to talk about these old great stories and trials. Well, but you, David, you're performing an invaluable service because young lawyers must realize that there is such a great tradition that they are becoming a part of, and, and that there is has been so much great lawyering in the English-speaking world, in England, in this country. There's such a great tradition. Um, and, you know, you hear people complain all the time, well, if I tried to do what Clarence Darrow did, or if I tried to do what so-and-so, whatever, Ben Williams did, you know, the judge nowadays would shut me down. I, I appeared many times before a wonderful judge. He's, he's still alive, although longer time. Wonderful man, Martin Kahn. And he said to me, when I took the bench, he said, the rule is, if you're entertaining me, the other guy's objection is not a rule. <laughs> That's great. I love and it. You know, I was never given a better bit of advice from one judge to another. That's great. Um, and speaking of which, you know, we'll look at your closing because I, I love how you start out. So you start out your closing by, by telling the jurors that you're the snitch. My name is Jorge Gasca. I, and I have to, from there. David, I have to tell you, I have struggled to remember that. This is 23 years ago. I remember that what I wanted to do was walk over to the witness stand and sit down. Now, that's awfully hard to get away with in federal court. And the judge who presided over this trial, although a very fine judge, was not from a state court trial background. He was a big firm background. And, and so a stickler for for protocol and demeanor. But in my mind's eye, I, I, I am walking over to the witness stand and sitting there and then looking at the jury and saying, my name is Jorge Gatz. Or maybe it is. Maybe it's Nelson Rodriguez or something else entirely. Maybe you'll never know my name. Maybe they don't want you to know my name. Now, David, if I did sit in the witness stand, I would have been shot by Marshall. But as I, <laughs> as I remember, that's what happened because they had so much had depended on this guy. 
And of course, they hadn't called me. And I went on and on about what there was to say. It's so good. And, you know, it's one of those things that that we we say we're going to do at Macon, Georgia and some of these other trial ad places, but nobody ever does it. You did it. Yeah. Yeah. The, now, you know, it has to be the right set of facts and the right opportunity. You can't force it. But I was at I, it, I took my time. And finally, I built up to where I said, my name is Jorge Gasca. I've been given this and this and this by the government. But the one thing I want that I don't have is the head of a sports star, a celebrity on a platter. Won't you give that to me? Oh. Won't you give that to Jorge Gasca? And then I walked away and began, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this case, blah, 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 blah. But I was very satisfied with the, the exhorting. It's really good stuff. So w- one thing that you do, and again, I, I could never do this. You, you love to quote Shakespeare, um, both uh, in, in, in your closing remarks and, and by the way, as a judge, right? You, you, you're a big Shakespeare guy. And in real life. I, st- <laughs> I steal from the best, David. I steal from the best. I quote you and Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. So, so you did quote Shakespeare. I was wondering how you were going to quote Shakespeare in this closing and you quote Shakespeare about conspiracy. Yes. Yeah. Well, because, you know, I, I wanted the jury to have a sense that this is a, a really dark crime, you know. And there is this passage from Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, you know, oh, conspiracy, shamest thou to high, show thy face, you know. It, it, painting it as this darkest and most, most evil and most conniving of crimes. And then juxtaposing that with, with Pedro Guerrero, who's just, the simplest of souls. Right, you follow up Shakespeare with with uh, with talking about Pedro. Exactly. I, and I on a couple of occasions, if I recall, you have the transcript, but I, if I recall, I refer to him as the grand conspirator. Yeah. yeah. So, so right after Shakespeare, you say conspiracy. This simpleton, this eleven-year-old child in a man's body, is a grand conspirator, and in his crimes, he is alleged to have acted with intent to distribute. Understand what that means. If there is no proof of intent to distribute. Proof beyond all reasonable doubt, then he must be acquitted because he's not charged with simple possession. Really, really good stuff. And there was no, well, there, there wasn't enough. Well, one of the things that, that I thought was interesting, so they go to his house, they search everything, they find nothing, right? I mean, why, why would they search the whole house if they thought they had enough with, with the tapes? The drugs were supposed to be delivered to his garage. Um, there had been talk about it. So, um, so nothing found. There was nothing. Well, they were delivering drugs, so they must have known that they weren't in the garage. Now, for whatever reason, you know, I was very lucky. He and his wife had uh, a daughter. She was 11 at the time of the events, 12 at the time of the trial. And she was in the um, on the gymnastics club at junior high school, at middle school. And she had just come home wearing her um, gymnastics attire, you know. And these guys come busting in with, you know, raid jackets and, and, and flak vests and long guns. And she was literally sitting on the staircase, oh. stopping, crying. This is a child, for goodness sake. The wife, Pedro's wife, because they have family in the Dominican Republic, had um, bags or boxes, like cardboard boxes packed up of, you know, clothing items, household items, soap, things like that, that they were detergent that they were going to ship 
to because they're either impossible to get or impossible to afford in the Dominican Republic. They rummage through all of that, throwing things all over the place. I saw, and this is always a debate in in uh, our cases that you brought the daughter to the trial and introduced her in opening. I sure uh, did. Yeah. So, so was there a debate about her being too young to bring to a case like this or, or, or that was an easy one for you? Oh, I didn't have her sit through the whole thing. I just wanted her there to be introduced. In opening, right? Yeah. Yes. And, and um, any, any worry that the jury might think, why, why are they bringing a, a young kid to the trial? You know, David, you and I have talked about one thing time and again. You can't deceive the 12 headed creature. If any lawyer thinks he's going to fool a jury is, yeah. is living in a, in a dream world. He's mistaken. Jurors may not understand everything cognitively, but they understand a great deal affectively. Did they realize that I had her there in part because of a desire for sympathy? I imagine they did. Yeah. I imagine they did. Does that mean it was wrong or valueless? No, I don't think it was. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we were uh, in my in my class last night. We were talking about sentencing and how to how to persuade a judge. And we were doing now these sentencing videos, you know, day in life videos. And the and the class was all asking, "Well, don't you think you know the judge is just going to think you're you're playing on emotion, and sympathy?" And I said, "Of course, you know, that's 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 the whole yes. idea." Yeah. Um, so let's go back to the closing. There's a great great portion of the closing where you use Pedro's baseball card. And, and uh, I'll let you tell the story because it's just too good. That, it's going to sound strange, but when I was crossing Agent Lucerno, I wanted to bring out the fact that Pedro has no criminal, have no criminal record whatsoever, and that this was the kind of crime, the way they built it and the, and the way they built it up, that would be done by experienced, hardened, knowledgeable, skilled drug dealers with connections. So I'm crossing him along this line, and I'm crossing him along this line. Uh, by, by and large, he's giving me the answers I need. And I said, and when you checked, you found that Pedro Guerrero had never been involved in any crime of any kind. And he said, well, we couldn't check. We, we didn't have his date of birth. That, to me, that sounds like an odd answer, because nowadays, any government agency can find out anything about any of us. Right. But this is in 23 years ago, and apparently they, to get access to to do a search on whatever databases they had in those days, they needed the date of birth. Uncharacteristically for me, I showed a lot of restraint. I didn't jump up and down right away. I saved it for closing, something I probably should have done more during my trial career than I did. In the trial, when they had those meetings at Hooters, they were so good and they set it up so nicely that when the informer introduced Agent Lucerna to Pedro, he said, this is my friend, whatever name he was using. Um, and, and when he heard that I know you, he just wanted to come. He just, he's a huge fan. And the agent says, yeah, oh, I, I, I've been your fan since I was a kid. I, I even have your baseball card. I've had it since I was a little boy. Would you autograph it for me? And Pedro autographs it. Wow. And at trial, they introduced the baseball card into evidence. So in closing argument, when I'm talking about how they couldn't trouble themselves to check to see that he never, this, this grand conspirator had never had so much as a parking ticket. And their answer was, we didn't have his date of birth. 
And I picked up the card, which was exhibit number, whatever it was. And I look at the jurors and say, I know some of you collected baseball cards when you were kids. You know what's on the back of a baseball card? And I turn it over and it says, born September 25th, 1956, San Pedro de Marcos, Dominican Republic. Wow. And I see jurors nodding like, yeah, anybody knows that? So anybody good. Anybody knows that? And they never looked on the back of the card. And I said, you know, investigation can be harder. It can be easy. But just waiting for informants to bring your heads on a platter is the easiest of all. Wow. So, so good. So the jury then goes out. Um, by the way, before we get to that, I mean, one of the things I, I noticed about both your opening and closing, it, it was a good reminder to me is you don't have to give two hour openings and two hour closings. I mean, these were 15 page transcripts each, 16 pages, whatever it was. I mean, you, you know, you, you won the case and without giving two or three hour long openings and closings. I, you know, every case is different. There are cases that justify very lengthy openings and closings. But I remind young lawyers, and I, if young lawyers are listening to this podcast, if you're going to give a, an opening or a closing that's more than 20 or 30 minutes in length, there are tools that you must employ to enable the jurors to, to hang on to key uh, datum from those, those speeches that you're giving, because otherwise uh, they're going to walk away with very little. And so, you know, we try to we try to talk about having a theme of the case and returning to the theme when you come to an important fact, using repetition, using um, uh, uh, different kinds of. I mean, there's a whole look. This is the whole list of of things that we have to do. There are an awful lot of cases, David, where 20, 25 minutes is more than enough. Although, you know. The old time greats like Darrow used to give three day closings. I oh mean, yeah, how, how long was his closing when he represented himself? I mean, some crazy long. Uh... Well, he, you know, in, in jury selection when he represented, um, um, it'll come to me when I don't want it. There was a trial in Detroit where a black physician um, bought a house that bordered on a white neighborhood, and and people came to attack him with guns, and he shot back in self defense because he was prosecuted for for the homicide. You know, we laugh now; it was not funny at the time. And uh, Darrow's jury selection lasted uh, over two weeks. Wow. His jury selection. Yeah. 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 So we can't do that. The, the jury goes out. Worst part for a criminal defense. Oh, oh. There's nothing like it. You know, I, I, I always used to joke, you remember, I used to joke that I was, I was going to do a, a diet video called How I Lost 30 Pounds While the Jury Was Out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's how it feels. Uh, but but they come back and they they find Pedro not guilty. Um, can can you do you remember what it was like in the courtroom when that happened? I remember exactly what it was like because it was actually sort of macabre humor. Um, the the courtroom deputy reads the verdict. Pedro turns to me and says, in, "I speak Spanish, and Pedro is more comfortable in Spanish." Turns to me and says in Spanish. Did she say not guilty? I can't believe it. Like, wasn't anybody paying any attention? And I tell him not guilty. He reaches over and he grabs me. Now, he'd been away from baseball for a while. But let me tell you, this guy was as strong as one of the Budweiser Clydesdales. He just, he grabs me and I, that does damage to a rib. Whispers something to me. I whisper something back to him. So we're still in court. We got to behave ourselves. Um, the courtroom deputy proceeds to set sentencing. 
Um, There was sort of an awkward moment where we had to explain that actually in case of acquittal, there was was no need to set a date for sentencing. It hadn't happened in so long that she just sort of reflexively set the matter for a sentencing hearing. Hysterical. When I get outside, the reporter for the Miami Herald in those days was a guy named David Kidwell. This is before David Ovalle's time. O.J. Weaver's time. But the Miami Herald has always been blessed with fabulous crime reporters going back to Edna Buchanan and Carl Hyacin, uh, really fabulous crime reporters and trial reporters. And David Kidwell was no exception. He was terrific. And he grabs me and he says, I, I saw you and Pedro whisper together in that one moment when we finally realized, we were, what did you say to each other? And I told him the truth. I said, he said to me, you are the greatest lawyer of them all. And I said, Pedro, you are the greatest dodger of them all. And Kidro looks at me and says, is that dodger with a capital D or a small D? <laughs> and I say, I'm going to let the Miami Herald decide that. And he lit up like, like a kid at Christmas and went running off to, to wherever reporters go. To that is great. What a great story. And then, of course, you know, you do all the news shows, um, including the O'Reilly show. Yes. And, and you got into it with O'Reilly. And this, I, I love telling this story to this day because your exchange with O'Reilly is one of the great all-time exchanges where he's, he's on your case for using the too stupid defense yeah. uh, and winning. And, and you tell him what? Yeah, well, he had, remember now, David, Bill O'Reilly was one of those guys who, before the camera starts rolling, is the most affable, chatty guy. You know, I used to live in Miami, went to high school, blah, blah, blah. And then you're right. The camera starts rolling. He's, how could you do such a thing? You're miserable, wretched, blah, 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 blah. I said, Bill, don't worry. When you're indicted, I'm going to get you an acquittal the same way, too. (laughs) On the too stupid. On the too stupid. Yeah, he was complaining that this was a fraud on the court, the too stupid defense. I said, I'm going to get you an acquittal, too, Bill. So great. So well, there was great. an article in the an editorial in one of the New York papers. I want to say the Post. I'm not from New York. I don't know the different papers. But it, the, whoever the sports editor or somebody was wrote this editorial that began, when I get arrested, somebody please call Milt Hirsch. You can't, you can't pay for uh, that, kind of, that kind of op-ed. It's you great. Cannot. You Do you, cannot. Uh, did, so, you know, as criminal defense lawyers, we never sort of savor the victories long enough. We we move too quickly to the new case, and we don't we don't enjoy it. Did you have an opportunity to, to have a victory party and enjoy this, or were you on to the next case at the time? No, you're so right, David. You're so right. It just dissipates into thin air, and you know you get back to the office, and all the calls you haven't returned, all the letters you haven't written, all the pleadings you need to get filed, all the other clients who are hey, where are you? What I paid you money, you know. Yeah. Well, I haven't told you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, what a great case and a great, you know, story and a wonderful acquittal. Um, w- whatever happened to Pedro after that? Did, what did he? David, bless his heart. Like so many clients, you know, um, nobody wants to remember his criminal defense attorney. That's an episode in, in a, a fellow's life that he would just as soon put in the past. Uh, to my knowledge, um, 
He went back to the Dominican Republic, although he does live a lot in Miami. I know he had some terrible health reverses a few years ago, but I have not heard from him. And that doesn't surprise me. It doesn't hurt my feelings. Um, I am not a part of his life that he has any reason to want to remember. He should have given you his World Series ring, as far as I'm concerned. That would have been lovely, but it didn't happen in any way. David, I can't take a World Series ring from a non-Cubs player. I just can't take that. <laughs> well, thank you, Milt. This was great. Really, really enjoyed the stories, and, and thank you for doing the show. Great fun for me, and I encourage all young lawyers to watch you, David Marcus, in trial when they have the chance. Wasn't that awesome? Milt is so great. What an unbelievable trial lawyer and what a great story. As soon as we finished the interview, I remembered one uh, wonderful part that I forgot to ask him about, which was character witnesses that he called. He called folks like Ozzie Smith um, and he asked Ozzie Smith, uh, the, the famous uh, shortstop for the Cardinals, who was so great. He asked him on the way out if he would uh, do a backflip um, like he did going on to the field. Uh, so I, I kick myself after these interviews sometimes for the things I forgot to ask. In any event, what a great win. What a great story. We love Milt as a judge, but we miss him as a trial lawyer. And, and I know he still has some trials left in him after he finishes doing the great job on the bench. Next uh, week, we'll be back in two weeks, actually. We're going to do it every other week. And next up... We're going to have Jerry Lefcourt from the Abby Hoffman Chicago 7 trial. I think you're going to find it fascinating. One of the biggest trials uh, that we've ever had. And uh, we welcome Jerry Lefcourt. I'll see you all in two weeks on For the Defense. Thanks.